Welcome to Concept to Creation, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs who share their business journey. We'll hear what motivated them to turn their dreams into a business. They'll share stories from the trenches of business, from raising capital, creating products or services, navigating regulations, hiring employees, and managing competition and growth. We'll discover their successes and failures, and they'll provide advice for budding entrepreneurs. Now, here's your host and fellow entrepreneur, Mike Conrad. And here we are. Welcome back. This is episode number three of the Concept to Creation podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for subscribing to this podcast. It's nice to see our audience uh, grow. Um, also, thanks for your comments and feedback. I really appreciate that. You guys have given me some good ideas on who to reach out to and uh, what other additional questions you would like me to ask our guests. So thanks for your feedback. Uh, also, thanks to the editor-in-chief of Circuit Assembly Magazine, Mike Buto. He and his uh, team at the magazine are, are syndicating this show on uh, pcbchat.com. So thank you, Mike, and, and team over there at Up Media. Uh, we have a lot of great, very interesting guests booked already on this show. Uh, on my other show, Reliability Matters, it's sometimes difficult to find guests, uh, but in this show, uh, it's a little easier. So a lot of, I think one thing entrepreneurs have in common is they love to talk about their business. It's, it's kind of a, it, it's their child in many ways, and who doesn't like to talk about their children? So uh, it is, uh, uh, I, I'm very fortunate that we're getting quite a few people agreeing to be on this show and share their journey. And uh, the person that I would like uh, to introduce now who's going to share his journey is uh, Mike Samika. Uh, he is the owner of multiple businesses, but all under the umbrella of FCT Assembly. Welcome, Mike. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for being my guest today. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, FCT Assembly. Why don't you explain to our audience what FCT Assembly is, what they do, and what your, um, you know, what your stake in the electronic assembly industry is, what place in that business uh, structure is FCT Assembly? Yeah, so FCT Assembly really has uh, four divisions, I would say, and, and sometimes I lose track. But um, the first division we have that I'll talk about is FCT Solder. And FCT Solder really started uh, with a partnership with Neo and Superior on the S100C bar. And that company focuses on lead-free solder, solder paste, fluxes, and, and, and other like wire solders and other miscellaneous uh, solder products. We also have um, uh, a partnership with um, Fred uh, Cox uh, of MET that we created a company called Blue Ring Stencils. And we're probably, I believe, the largest or second largest SMT stencil manufacturer in North America. Uh, they've also uh, acquired uh, Stone Mountain Tooling, which makes uh, fixtures and tooling for the electronic assembly market. We have um, another company called A Laser, another division called A Laser that makes parts for the electronics, medical, um, aerospace industries. We use lasers to cut precision parts. Um, and as well, we have uh, these services in Mexico uh, under our name FCTA Mexico. Uh, so that's kind of what FCT Assembly is. We have a couple of other companies. In fact, the first company I started was Florida Surtec, and Florida Surtec sells chemicals to the printed circuit board industry. 
So we're pretty knowledgeable when it comes to surface finishes, uh, uh, plating baths, those types of materials. So uh, that was the first company I started. And we have a company called uh, FCT Water Treat that deals with treatment, uh, treatment of wastewater, uh, metal bearing wastes. And uh, in the last but not least, we have FCT Recovery that also does um, precious metal recovery through uh, drosses and, and gold and, and so forth. Interesting. So you would be defined in the world of entrepreneurs as a serial entrepreneur. Uh, and I and guess. It, I don't know. It sounds like every, every um, synergistic company you would partner with anyway, you've made an acquisition of. That's, that's what it sounds like. Because you're not, you're not, you don't have any, at least that I can see, you don't have any business units that are just way out in left field that are unrelated. I think you're all one degree of separation away from each other. Is that correct? Yeah, I think they all, you know, obviously the reason we started those companies, you know, back in 2001, there was a real downturn to the circuit board side. And that was when we only had Florida Surtec. And we decided, my brother and I decided to really focus on diversification. And that that kind of started these, these other companies up, but they're all tied together in a way. Uh, I think FCT Water has kind of morphed into a different company where they focus a lot on cooling towers and boilers. Uh, which is a little bit different than than our industry. They also have DI bottles that that our, our industry uses, and um, and a laser is a little bit different. Yeah, we use lasers that are very similar to to what's used to cut stencils, but we've taken that to a, a different direction where we're cutting plastics and in different exotic materials that um, has gone after really a different industry uh, per se. So. They're all kind of tied together, but a lot of it has to do with the electronic assembly, uh, electronic assembly industry from beginning circuit board all the way to finish product. How geographically diverse are your business units? I know that um, most of your companies, or some of your companies anyway, are headquartered in Colorado. Isn't A Laser in San Jose, California? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, A Laser is in Milpitas. We have also a Blue Ring Stencil Division in Milpitas. Uh, we have. Blue Ring Stencil has probably, I think, about six or seven facilities uh, around the country. I don't, truthfully, I don't even know all of them. Uh, we just opened up in Toronto uh, last week. Uh, we have, I think, one in New Jersey, New Hampshire, Florida, Dallas. Um, then uh, A Lasers only in Milpitas. FCT Water works out of Colorado, and Florida Surtec works out of uh, Colorado as well. So FCTA Mexico has four facilities. They're in Monterey, Tijuana. Uh, Guadalajara and Juarez. Before FCT assembly, were you in our industry? Were you in this industry that you're in now? Uh, before uh, I started, uh, so the first company I started was Florida Surtec in 1991, and okay. before that, um, I uh, right out of college I played professional tennis for for about a year, year and a half, and then I worked for a company called Simmons Chemical. Simmons Chemical is a distributor of Alpha Metals, and they also had the Allied Genesol product line. So I started to learn a little bit about the electronic assembly market back in the mid 80s, mid to late 80s, uh, through my first job uh, of Simmons Chemical. And I was just a salesman there. But I think the unique trade I brought to that company and maybe to the industry was I was fairly uh, good at sales and I had a background in chemistry. So I got my degree in chemistry. So the two were a little bit unique in a sense that, you know, when you get the chemistry degree and you're able to sell. Uh, and communicate. I, I felt like that was something unique that I can build up. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Uh, how long have you had a, well, I'm assuming I'm, 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 um, 
presenting evidence. Uh, I'm presenting information, not yet in evidence, I guess, if I say this, but um, I'm assuming you had some degree of entrepreneurial desire. Some entre- so-called entrepreneurs didn't, you know, I didn't. Uh, well, I, I guess I did, if I were to be totally honest, but many, many don't. They just stumble across an opportunity that's too good to, to pass up, uh, or, or there's just no other choice in their career path. They just end up having to maybe save their career by buying a company and, and doing what they love to do, even though that maybe was not their goal. Was it your goal to uh, start your own business or was, are you kind of a result of circumstances that were just thrown in front of you? Yeah, I, I would say when I was younger, um, you know, obviously business intrigued me. I remember, God, when I was 19, 20, I was going to start a hot dog stand uh, or I was going to open up a sports shop. But in truth, probably when I was that age, I was thinking I was going to be a tennis professional. And when I, when I came to the realization that I wasn't good enough to do that, uh, then I started to think about business. Um, I probably knew back then that I was going to start something on my own. Um, but, you know, my first job, I got my first job and my dad always told me, hey, learn learn on somebody else's dime. So I started to work and started to understand a little bit. And uh, when I had my first daughter, I was 26. I thought, well, if I'm going to do something, uh, it's time to do it. And I just came up with an idea. So it wasn't uh, a company that I bought. It, it was really um, just a, a startup company with an idea. Uh, no customers, no formulations, and just I'll figure it all out. And, and that's what I did. There must be some uh, risk-averse nature, or actually not risk-averse, uh, uh, okay with risk nature about you, because to leave a quote-unquote perfectly good job with a stable paycheck, it, at least that's the promise, um, in exchange for going into a field of business where statistically 75% of all new businesses fail within 10 years, half fail within five years, a uh, third fail within the first year is, you know, there's got to be a, a unique mindset to everyone who thinks that they can beat the odds. You know, it's like the guy that shows up to a table in Vegas and, and they look at the, you know, say it's roulette and they look at the, the indicator that shows the last 20 hands and, and it's been black, 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 you know, uh, they think they've got a formula. They go, I'm going to bet right. on black because it's on a trend, or I'm going to bet on red because it hasn't, there hasn't been a red in a while. There's, there are people who are not risk averse who, are successful and there are people who are not risk averse who lose everything. What made you think you could beat the odds or did you not know what you did not know? I probably didn't know. I certainly didn't know those statistics at the time. If I did, maybe I would have been smarter and kept my job. But um, I think, you know, number one, I I, uh, had a lot of confidence. Number two, um, I love to, you know, I love to create. So, you know, I love to create, I love to change. It's part of who I am and it's become kind of our company in a way. Um, So um, it was, it was, you know, at the time I would say that um, I wasn't smart enough to look at all, but I just said I was going to do it. And so I jumped in and and I had a wife that uh, was supportive of that. Uh, I remember my wife, my, my parents, my brother, uh, and, and certainly my mother-in-law supported me. I'm not sure anybody else did. They all thought I was nuts. Uh, but I said, let's try it. And um, and I'm not sure I would have been successful if I had uh, deeper pockets or if I had an out. I always tell people, they say, why were you successful? I said, there was no other choice. I, I threw it all out there. It's like putting all your chips on the table. I was like, 
all right, let's do this. So uh, to me, there was really, I never even thought about failing. Yeah. The, uh, in the words of, of many movie lines, failure is not an option, right? Yeah. 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 I, it I, was just, it was something I never thought of to be truthful. It was just like, all right, you got to work harder or there was never, I never thought of my, okay, here's my fallback position. I never had a fallback position. It was always, this is going to work. Right. I think if you have a fallback position, then you don't try as hard, right? Because yep. you already start, you know, half your brain's on the, on plan B. I, I think looking back, at least in my case, some of my best decisions uh, turned out to be instances where I had no choice. The, you know, the circumstances limited my options to one. And right even if it was a scary thing to do, we just did it. And, you know, we, we were many times in our company's history, that's what saved the company when we had no yeah. other alternative. We should have done it sooner, but we had other options that were easier and less scary and less risky and, and less embarrassing, like to admit you were wrong about something. So you put it off and put right. it off and put it off until finally there's only one option left. And it turns out, you know, you just rip the Band-Aid off and get on with yeah. it, right? So... I yeah. think we all can share that. So starting a business is not inexpensive. I think when I started my business, I know when I started my business, I had no idea how much it was going to cost. I thought I had twice as much money as I needed as seed capital. And it, it was like pouring isopropyl alcohol on a, on a stove. It just went, <laughs> it just, it just right. evaporated, right? Um, yeah. Much, much faster than I ever thought possible. Uh, how did you uh, raise the money to start a business? Um, did your is the reason your friends weren't uh, too supportive is because they didn't want to loan you money? Uh, they saw the caller well, ID and stopped returning your calls, or uh, no? They just thought I was crazy. They they thought well, kind of like you said, "What are you leaving a good job for?" You can you you know at that point in time, I was twenty six, I think, and I was running that company already, so I was kind of in charge of it. But the truth, uh, you know as the story played out, I was offered or I was promised certain things and, and, you know, it's easy to promise, but when the, the company gets worth quite a bit more, it's hard to fulfill on that. So when that wasn't fulfilled, I just said, I'll do my own thing. So, um, you know, I started mine, uh, you know, cash is an interesting thing, but, you know, I started uh, our business on um, with my wedding money. So I got married, we, we had about $20,000 and that was kind of the seed capital. I also got support um, from my father, who, who offered to pay kind of uh, a low monthly salary uh, to, to keep me surviving. And I picked up a partner, Glenn Sikorson, early on, and his dad did the same for him. So he wanted his uh, son to have a future. So he said, I'll kick in the same amount. So we started with very little money. And, you know, of course, we had no sales. Uh, we had really no product. I thought, well, I'll figure this out pretty quickly. And uh, within the first three months, I started to recognize that these formulas were a little bit trickier than I thought. And uh, I failed at a couple of shops. I started in Chicago and I failed at a couple of surfboard shops. And I thought, huh. And I remember being in a meeting with both, both parents and both my father and Glenn's father. And he said, you better figure this out. And I thought, what am I getting myself into? But uh, within about a week, I kind of figured out that first formulation and we had sales. So at the time I thought, well, we got plenty of money like you, but then you start growing and it goes really fast and you start buying inventory. And, and, you know, I, I really just 
was able to scrape by for the for the next three four years uh, with that model. But you know, I think the first year we probably did maybe ninety thousand in sales uh, after the first year. Then we we typically doubled every year for the next four years, and so there was never any money. I kept on living on that modest amount. My wife went to work, and uh, and we survived. I I think that's a good word. The first few years of a business is really more about survival, cash flow, profit. Who knows if you make yeah. a profit or not? I know I said this on, on the last episode we recorded that in our case, I, I didn't even think about profit. I just was worried about covering payroll the next week. And, right. And you kind of live payroll to payroll, you know, <laughs> and at home you're paycheck to paycheck, but at work you're payroll yep. to payroll. Uh, you mentioned you'd had a double, you know, a, a, you know, basically a two X growth every year. That right. is challenging. You know, I was always under the impression that the number one rule of business is you have to grow. I remember I joined a CEO peer group uh, where once a month we would all get together and, and um, basically, you know, lie to each other about how well we're doing and, <laughs> mm-hmm. right. and, and, and pick on them and hope they don't pick on us. And, the number one feedback I would receive is you have to grow. What are you doing to grow? You know, and I, and I kept thinking, you know, uh, no pressure, no diamonds, no guts, no glory. You, you know, you just got to throw it all out there yeah. and grow. And then I realized later that growth is a, a, a quite an expensive luxury and cash flow <laughs> is more important than growth and growth and right. cash flow are at polar opposites because if you grow, right. you suck down cash flow. So how did you manage that? that uh, double digit growth year over year well, for the first few years and cash flow. Yeah, it was uh, number one, we, we started with nothing. So the bar was set so low. So when you double $90,000 a year sales and you go to, let's say 170, uh, it's, although it's significant to you doing it, uh, it doesn't take a whole lot of cash. So we, I mean, we leveraged uh, our, um, uh, our suppliers as best we could. Uh, you know, we went probably out to 90, 120 day, days uh, pay. We probably did that for maybe the first six, seven years. We would kind of play with that. We'd sometimes get credit cards to help offset some of that stuff. We'd, uh, we'd manage our expenses. I, for the first year, I blended all the chemicals. I delivered materials. I did all the accounting myself at night. So it was, it was a one-man operation for the first uh, six months, my my partner Glenn, who I who I had mentioned, came in and started helping a little bit. And so, you kept your cost as low as you could. You kept your expenses down, and you leveraged what you could to do it. I think we we got some help from a bank that really was tied to uh, Glenn's father that gave us maybe another forty or fifty thousand. Uh, but it was a it was a real struggle, and and you learn a lot from that. Right now, things are a lot easier, but you learn a lot from that. And, uh, but um, you know, looking back, you know, 30 years ago, in, in a weird way, it was kind of fun. So, you know, you're, you're just kind of grinding, you're working 15, 16 hours days. And, and I look back at it uh, with fond memory. So it's not like, oh, that was terrible. I'd never do it again. I, it was kind of enjoyable. Yeah, I, ha- I share that same experience. Uh, I think age, time, distance, all have a, a, a unique ability to kind of dull down or, or, or blur out, maybe even erase some of the stress that was involved. And you end up looking right. back at this nostalgic time. Yeah. You know, I did the same thing. I would go to work on Monday and not come home till Wednesday night. And 
you know, I would do that several times a month as we were about to release a product. And, and, and I, I know, I mean, I, I can remember there were some very stressful times when I didn't know if we were going to make it. I didn't know if we are going to keep our house. I didn't know, uh, you know, if we'd have to, you know, do the big bankruptcy or, or whatever. Right. Those were all lurking back there as fear. Yeah. And, uh, but now all I remember was the adventure, right? Right. I, I know. I know. I went through a lot of stress, but I don't feel that anymore. So, yeah. Th- there's there was really no PTSD involved. It's it's uh, maybe it's a little bit of Stockholm syndrome. We get to we get to <laughs> we get to be fond of our captor, and our captor was debt yeah. and and uh, and the threat of failure. Uh, yeah. Besides cash flow, what were some of the other? Because cash flow well, probably think, never goes away. But you know, what are the other struggles? Cash flow. You know, we struggle with cash flow. I'll bet you we struggle with cash flow for for twenty years, maybe maybe fifteen years. I, I would say, and because we're always growing, right? And so you're early. Your cash flow. You're always looking to two ways. You're either burning cash or you're growing, and you need cash, right? Yes. In either way, you're struggling, right? You're always trying to think, where am I going to get the next amount of cash to keep keep growing? And so. Um, so it's never, it's never easy. I would say, you know, for me, the struggle was, uh, with the growth was how do you get everything done? How do you manage your time? Uh, you know, it's easy when you're young, when I was 27, when, when, you know, we started this thing, maybe the first five, seven years, you can work 15, 16 hours a day, but at some point in time that catches up to you. So, you know, figuring out how to manage your time, build a really good team before it was, everything had to come through me, right? I've learned so much about the the importance of really good employees and, and really good partners. And so, uh, you know, what I know today, you know, uh, I would certainly make some of those changes and, and focus on building really good people. Because when you're young and you're 27, you think you do it all and you put energy to it and you, you could do it. And all you do is you get a bunch of gophers. But the truth is the gophers don't help a whole lot and they cost money. And so you're kind of burning extra money, but you're not getting yourself out of uh, out of the out of the hole that you're digging yourself in. So, uh, you know, to me, I think some of the mistakes we had with that growth was, you know, did we do we spend our money wisely to build the people? Do we value the people? Uh, And I would say, lastly, it was not saying no enough. Right. You you take everything on And that's a salesman's mentality. You. All right. We'll take that order even if it's 10% margin or 15% margin. Yeah, we'll sell that, right? And is is I've come to find, at least from my from my perspective, you know, qualifying your customers in the products that you sell are really important. Uh, but when you start a company, you don't have any sales. So you take everything and that could kind of backfire on you a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bit like putting starter fluid down the carburetor, right? It'll, it'll get you started, yep. but but you're not going to go far on it, right? It'll, it'll yeah. burn up your engine if you try and run on that. Um, exactly. You, you mentioned something interesting, and that's the word no. Uh, I, I've done a lot of uh, talks in, uh, to students, college students, entrepreneurial-type mm. college students. And you know, so I tell them the most profitable word in sales is no. We make yep. more money saying no than we make saying yes. And yeah. the trick is knowing the right customer, the right product, the right profit margin, and saying no to, to discounts. And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't realize it in my first probably 15 years in my almost 30-year uh, business career, is that if one gives 10% of their uh, price away, 
that could be 100% of the profit, you know, the net profit right. at the end of the day. Right. And I, I realized after, after trying to say yes to everyone, because th to me it was a win-win, I got a sale and my competitor didn't. Two wins, right? right? And uh, I realized at one point uh, out of uh, no other choice uh, to realize this was that I would be cheaper just sending this customer a check for $5,000 than I would be to sell right. them a machine at the price they wanted to pay. I would have saved mm -hmm. money just sending them money, right? Right. And sometimes the best thing you can do is say no, and then they go to your competitor who hasn't caught on to that concept yet. Exactly. And says, yes, that's the closest thing to a Trojan horse you can send into your competitor is a customer that that's leads exactly right. money. And I don't know about you, uh, confirm if this is just me or, or this is, if you've noticed this too, people who lead on price, if that's the first question, you know, when they're on the phone, um, mm -hmm. tend to be the, some of the worst customers. They tend to be needier. They, you know, at least from an equipment standpoint, if they just lead with price, I can guarantee you they're not going to maintain their machine. They're not going to partner with the right. supplier. They are just going to yeah. pick up the phone whenever something is, whenever they don't understand something and expect you there in 10 minutes. It, it, yeah. The, the, it's the a, lowest it's an profit, interesting the piece. highest cost, right? Yeah, it's it's an interesting piece when you look at all our companies. So I saw that mistake uh, when I was uh, working at Florida Surtech. I saw that, you know, when you start, you take anybody. And so you, you're selling to people. But what you come to find out is what we've come to learn is we were selling people that, like you said, were all about price. But those same customers were all, probably needed the most service. So they, they consumed your time. And the third piece is they paid their bills the worst. And so you were like, what are we doing with this? We have this small customer that they need the most of our time and they don't really pay their bills that well. So that's where we started to learn, you know, from Florida Surtech FCT assembly, we made a big adjustment. We said, stop, we're not just going to sell everything. We're not going to be a commodity seller of, for instance, 6337 solder. We're not doing that. We're going to focus on more, uh, value technology and 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 really push uh, you know value sell. Uh, we offer solutions um, uh, and we're going to sell that and we're not going to just get into the price. And so that shift changed. The the interesting thing is even with Florida Surtech today, we still fight that same culture because you know I kind of started it. I did that for 15 years, and so I'm still fighting with some of those same people saying, "Guys, what are you doing?" But where we started fresh with FCT Water. Uh, FCT assembly, we now really qualify our customers really well because, you know, sometimes that same customer that you mentioned that talks about price, they usually take the same amount of time to land the customer that you can make really good margin, get paid correctly, and don't need that much of your time. Right. Yeah. I, and that's something that uh, us business owners don't get until many years later. It's, it's like a, yeah. it's like a 15 year, 20 year PhD program, right? It, it, <laughs> It's late in the curriculum before we figure yeah. that out. But, you know, that's probably a, good, though. Yeah. Don't you think that's good? I was going to say, it probably cost us a million dollars to learn that, or more. True. But you eventually get there. True. But I think if we knew that too soon, I'm a big believer in that what we learn, we learn synchronistically, and, and there's a certain timing involved. Um, you made a comment earlier that if you knew what the risks were, uh, from, you know, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, right. you may not have started the company, right? So, right. And I think the fact that we went after every sale, profitable or not, mostly not, really, those sales are sometimes easier to get. When you give something away for half price, 
obviously there's not a lot of work involved in, in, in getting right. that sale. So maybe those were needed at the time, even though they weren't profitable, they did allow cash to come in and flow through and get some vendors paid right. and cover payroll. Uh, I know that one of the worst things I could do, which, were, was, which was absolutely necessary to do, was to challenge my team to bring in more orders. I'll approve anything, just bring me orders. And we would get a flood of orders and a ton of money coming through. And you know, mm -hmm. as long as, it was almost like a, a pyramid scheme, not, not that we were a pyramid right. scheme, but the concept of you know, just keep getting more orders, even though none of them are profitable, right. as long as you keep getting more and more and more orders, you, you can maintain right. the cash flow. At, at some point though, you have to pay your vendors and, and that's yeah. when the profits, the lack of profits really make it challenging to do that. So you just borrow more money and go into the line of credit yeah. and, uh, and yeah. just kick the can. I remember, um, it's in interesting. I remember a story when I first started, there was a company called uh, Circuit Etching Techniques out of Elk Grove and really nice people. And I went in there and I, I was selling a product. And um, so I had this product and basically I was the new guy. And I, you know, back then, this is 1991, we would, I took a, uh, a Xerox label and I would glue it on and our containers look so much worse. And so I'd say, Hey, uh, let me sell you this reflow oil. I remember I'm going to sell you this reflow oil or reflow flux. And he said, okay, fine, try it. And it was all about price, uh, and bring it in. And I remember he called me up that afternoon. He said, Hey, I've scrapped tw 20 panels. The, the, the solder's getting eaten away. And I go, what? And so I looked there and there's smoke in the room from this. Obviously I did something wrong. And uh, I remember looking at Rao and I said, nah, that's not good. He goes, no, it's not. He was really mad. And I go, can I come back next week and try again? And uh, if, to my point, I, I think, I mean, to your point, I think if you look at that, I had to start somewhere. If I started with the high-end people, I would have failed. But if I could have started with those people, they gave me multiple opportunities. Yeah, the margins were low, but I can kind of craft our business a little bit based on those people. So if I tried to perform this in Northern California instead of Chicago, we would have failed. Yeah. You mentioned just a little bit ago, you used the word commodity. So whether it's fair or unfair, accurate or not accurate, at least two of your businesses, stencils and solder paste, may be considered by many as a commodity, right? They're sold by mm -hmm. many people. Um, you all kind of share the same cost of materials uh, and uh, and generally capital equipment buyers aren't the ones buying those products. They're, they're done by, um, you know, commodity buyers within big companies. Right. Whose job it is, is to, you know, whether they use Alpha or Kester or FCT or whoever, Indium, their job is to uh, take the type of pace the engineer is looking for and then get the best price on it, right? That's, right. that's their thinking and they're bonused on that, I think. Mm -hmm. So how do you take FCT assembly or blue ring stencils? How do you take a, a, a company that manufactures what many buyers consider is a commodity? And even though you know, I know, there are differences within those quote unquote right. commodities. Um, how do you stand out? How do you make FCT assemblies, blue ring stencils, a laser, all, all the different entities you have, how do you make those stand out from other companies that sell technically not correct, but what a lot of your customers would go, it's the same thing, just in a you know, different yeah. label on the jar. How do you stand out and, and well, sell more than the actual product? Yeah. I mean, so it goes back to, you know, a, a big part of who we are. And I, I would say that 
when you talk to our, our managers, we, we talk about differentiation and how do we differentiate ourselves versus the other guy. And I think Blue Ring Stencil is a great case for that because, you know, one of our big competitors, and, and I'm fairly close to some of our big competitors, would say, hey, all we do is, is cut holes in a piece of stainless steel sheet and sell it. And we, the faster you do it, the better you are. But, you know, we look at how do we differentiate that? And so we developed our nano slick gold coating. We, uh, uh, we came up with that to say, we're going to release solder paste better than anybody else, or we'll come up with our mesh welding technology that, that gets rid of, um, the scrap when you get a delamination because of the, the, uh, glue, uh, you know, we had, uh, nano slick gold's a great example, but when, when you look at that example, there were other people that started kind of copy that technology. Um, and so then we came up with the next set of technology that allowed uh, really our, our new nanoslip gold that allows us a 10x life uh, versus the old one. So to me, it's always about, you know, what can we do that keep on improving our technology that offers solutions to our customers? And so you know, solder paste is an uh, interesting product. And I think bar solder is more of a commodity than solder paste because solder paste is really technical, but it goes back to selling value and selling to the right person, right? If you go to a, a, a Jable or a Flextronics, their, their job is like you said, to lower the price. But if you go to their customer, that OEM that says, hey, I need this problem. These are the problems I have. Can you solve it? You can solve those problems. Then you're able to hold that price. So we always talk to our group about selling value, but I also challenge our teams uh, in all our companies that what are we going to do next? So let's just not rest on our laurels. We we invented, uh, we came up with Nanoslip Gold. How do we take that to the next level? What is the next level? So so from that, now we've developed a whole new laser structuring system that will make that coating even better. And what what we found is. On the commodity side, there's not that much profitability. But as you add some of these other technologies to that, we're able to to, to get the right EBITDA that, that allows us to, to keep on growing. I'm muted myself there. Through the value added, I guess, right? Yes. So the commodity is the ticket in the door, and the value added services are, are where the profit comes from, uh, I, would, exactly. I would suppose. Yeah. So what skills do you possess today? that you lacked when you started this business journey? I don't know. If, you have to come up with yeah, at least I one, tell you, right? Well, I can, I can come up with a number. I, I could tell you this. I don't have the energy I had when I was 27. Uh, I'm probably more risk averse than when I was 27. But, you know, I've learned a lot from, a, from an accounting standpoint. I've learned, you know, how to read an income statement. We, uh, we built our own ERP system, right? And so to know exactly where your money's at, how it flows, what, what you need, your gross profits, those things are really important. Before you, you just get by. Then you don't realize it's a real tool to your business. So, you know, I think that's one thing I've learned uh, that's really critical in business. Uh, I think the HR component, you know, I wouldn't put a lot of value, even uh, five years ago, I'm not sure I'd put a lot of value. And now I look at that and say, this, uh, is the most value that we can put within our company or one of the most values. And and really about seven years ago, I, I started down a different path with our companies. Uh, and I decided to build the next generation of managers. I was getting old. My brother uh, was a couple of years older than me. My, my partner, Glenn, is uh, similar in age to me. And I thought, 
we'll either have to sell this these businesses or we can keep them going. And, and to me, it was more about leaving that legacy and building the the managers of tomorrow, those champions of tomorrow, and teaching them all that I learned. But the truth is, Mike, they're they're smarter than me. All these guys. So we brought in people and we focused a lot on education. So they go to all the classes, being water treatment, they're going to be, you know, we have the, the youngest certified water treater ever. Uh, so they go to the classes. We meet uh, like this last year with the pandemic, we we're meeting weekly. We re read books. We talk about business, what's important, what's not, where we focus, uh, you know, and so uh, to me, those are the things I've learned. Value the employees, value the education and, and the teaching piece. Um, know that the financial piece is a really important part of your business that a lot of people see. And then also coming back to focus and, and qualifying the right customers and the right product lines that you want to sell. Yeah, I think human nature is such that if, <clears throat> if you consider yourself a 10 on a scale and you hire somebody, you're going to hire not a 10, you're going to hire a nine. It's just mm -hmm. job security. And then that nine right. will get to the point where they have to hire someone and they'll hire an eight and you can see the direction, right? Uh, right. It's, it's a, it's a right. downward death spiral. And in the early days of my business, I, I think arguably I was the smartest person in the room, not because I'm the smartest person on the planet, but because mm -hmm. I hired people I could afford and right. gopher would be, you know, it, it, I don't mean that in yeah. a derogatory sense, but I hired people who could just do my tasks for me. I was the brains right. and they, they would just run the tasks for me. And then eventually, I think we all get to the point where we realize that, you know, my goal now in life is if I, you know, go into my conference room filled with staff, I want to be the dumbest guy in the room. Uh, and <laughs> I want to surround myself with people who are smarter than me. And, you know, right. I still got the gut. I'm sure you still have the gut, the right. instinct, Right. You, you, yeah. You're the guy that should be up in the crow's nest to see, you know, uh, right. to, to see where the stars are and where the horizon is and figure out, you know, the, the direction of your ship. But you should not be the guy shoveling coal into the furnace and you should not be the guy, no. um, you know, painting and swabbing the deck and things like that. You know, you want to be you want to be a more strategic role. But in the beginning, when we start our businesses, we are the chief cook and bottle washer. Right. We right. We are. Yeah. It, we're the free labor, right? That allows yeah. it to be successful at first. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think, think, yeah, go ahead. No, no I, I think the, the, the reason 75% of businesses fail statistically in, in the first 10 years is probably because business owners don't evolve. They, they think that it was a guaranteed success. What got them from A to B worked, which was working you know, 16 hour days right. and doing everything yourself and, and being always being the smartest person in the room. And then eventually the company outgrew them. And, you know, it's like yeah. putting a tree in a small pot. It will yeah. sprout, it will grow. And eventually it will die because it just doesn't have enough room to spread its roots and, and form a foundation. I think that's a similar thing that happens with uh, probably most of the businesses that fail. So I think the, yeah, the, I, the, yeah. the, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I, it's, I'm interviewing you and I'm doing the talking here, but um, which I guess is a, you know, a trait of a lot of entrepreneurs. But the, just to finish the point, I think the 75% failure rate is probably not that high if people can realize they need to get out of their own way, right? They need, yeah. they need to evolve. They need to shift up to the next level. I'll turn it back to my guests now. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for letting me go. Well, on that I was just going to make a couple of points to that. You know, 
uh, for us and for me, and I know my daughter's the same way built and she's kind of taking, taking on a lot of my role, but we love change, right? It's, it's always about how do we improve? How do we evolve? How do we adapt? Uh, a lot of people are stuck in their ways and they can't make that change. And it could be that the market changes, um, or the dynamic of business changes, who knows what it is, but people get stuck and we've bought, and I've probably bought over the last 30 years, maybe I've bought, I don't know, 20 companies, uh, 15, 20 companies or so. And we're usually buying a company, maybe, I don't know if distress is the right word, but we're buying a company because of what you just said. They weren't able to figure out how to grow beyond that. They're stuck. They've hired the wrong people. They don't know how to fire somebody, how to make a change, uh, all of these things. So we come in and maybe they say, oh, you're the the tough guy. It's not tough. It's just, to me, it's business. And we're really nice about all these things. But the fact is, is there's a certain way you got to run business. And as you run your business, you got to constantly be looking to improve and evolve. And if you don't have that change uh, uh, capacity, your things change all the time. So uh, a lot of people in our company, they laugh, they go, Mike, um, you like to change almost too much. And I go, okay, maybe. But the truth is I've got a group of about 12 managers now and they've taken on that and they understand that. And so I think that makes us a lot stronger, uh, you know, and, and hopefully you partner yourself up with the, the right people. For me, I was more of a, a visionary, more creative, let's say, uh, you know, on the chemistry side as well. But I needed a bunch of what we call integrators, people that can get things done and focus on the details. And so you have to find that right mix of people uh, and play to their strengths, right? And so again, these are things I've learned. Before it was like you, let's hire a gopher. And then you're looking and say, who else can take this? There's only one guy that can do it all. And there's only so much of that one guy. Yeah, I think a lot of businesses are started by entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are largely creative, conceptual people. You know, I consider myself a conceptual creative person, which means I come up with a lot of ideas, but I don't actually finish any of them, right? I, right. I, I'm the guy That's who me. gets really excited about something, uh, particularly if I'm on vacation. My team shared this with me not too long ago that they always used to joke, you know, when Mike comes back from vacation, get ready for the meeting because he's going to come back with 25 <laughs> new ideas, you know, which right. sounded really good when I'm drinking tequila, smoking a cigar in a yeah. pool in Mexico, but, but um, yeah. you know, maybe not in the real world. But we... We can frustrate people, very us type of people. We can frustrate right. people very easily because we are, you know, just if, if we're ever kidnapped, just follow a trail of uncompleted projects and, and it'll lead <laughs> to our bodies, right? So, yeah. Uh, so, I, I it, you have to bring in people who can, you know, play their, their role in the relay race where, you know, your job right. is to pass that baton and then create something else and then pass that baton. And, and, right. I, and I think that also guarantees that you won't be in the 75% majority that fails. You'll be in the 25% yeah. majority that, that makes it. You talk about education yeah. and, uh, you know, educating your staff, which is wonderful. I think, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer, at least my experience has, has taught me uh, when it comes to retaining employees, it's almost never about the money. It is about their sense of fulfillment and being part right. of something greater than themselves, right? That, that's been my right. experience. People who leave for money, it's usually just an excuse. It really is that they weren't fulfilled. And maybe they didn't even realize that. Um, right. They were just unsatisfied. So, you know, what are you unsatisfied about? Right. Money. So, but it's, it's usually never about the money. It's, it's about just being part of, of a team and, and being valued. Mm -hmm. So let's go 
let's carry that education theme. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to educate your younger self. If, if you mm-hmm. had the ability to go back in time, I think you said it was 1991. Uh, that 1991, Florida, I started. Yeah. So let's go back to right. 1991. Uh, old Mike, older Mike is talking to younger Mike. Uh, what would you tell younger Mike? What would you, what tips would you give him based on what you've learned all those years? And, and maybe even more importantly, what wouldn't you tell him that you know now? <laughs> well, I think that the first thing I would tell him, I think I would tell him, but this might, might bankrupt us, but I would say, relax. Uh, don't worry. It's, you know, this isn't uh, a sprint, it's a marathon. And so you don't have to get everything done right now. You don't have to land everything right now. Take your time, think things through and, and make sure you try to go on the right path. So uh, I, I would I would probably start there. And, and, you know, as you get older, you start to relax a little bit and you start to think a little bit and, and the anxiety and the stress uh, doesn't eat at you. And so uh, to me, that would probably be first and foremost. And, and the second thing is, uh, make sure you you take your time in building your team and 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 don't get so caught up into um, uh, a certain industry or a certain product. Look at what makes the most sense, what fits your skill set, and uh, uh, and and if you do that, I think you have a better chance of success. So I think those things are are really important. Obviously, building uh, when you have the money to afford it, building the right team. And creating the right culture. You know, we've had some really interesting, you know, if I were to write a book about some of the culture shifts that we've needed to do, um, you know, it's it's been really, for me, educational. So you look at a laser about five years ago or six years ago, where they were heading and where they're at today with a, a new manager and just a whole new philosophy, FCT Water. These are some of our, our greatest accomplishments that I've gotten to witness and be a part of, uh, you know. Uh, starting with the right culture, you know, getting people, uh, making sure it's fun, making sure they're in the right roles, you know, getting the right person in the right spot, um, and in empowering these people to, to take the ball and run with it. You know, when you're younger, you don't do any of that. So I would say, hey, you don't have to do it all, Mr. Hotshot. You know, like my mom used to say, you're two houses from the poor house. Don't ever forget it. So be humble and, and allow other people uh, some opportunity. Yeah, I've long said that the difference between success and failure is about four paychecks. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. There's a time when that was actually true. Um, there are common myths out there about what it's like to own your own business, and these are usually held by people who have never and will never hold their own business. Um, what you know, the common myth is you own your own business. You can write your own paycheck. You can use the company credit card all the time. You can take extended vacations and you can, you know, just, just call in and boss people around. Those are the myths. Um, for those who are considering starting a business, what's it really like, Mike, to, to own and operate one well, business, if not 20 yeah. businesses? It's nothing like you just said. I mean, those are the myths and they don't, they don't recognize that what ends up happening when you own a business, the business never really turns off your mind. Uh, I think maybe this is a good thing or a bad thing, but your mind never uh, rests. You're on a vacation. I've yet to take one vacation since I started FCT where I didn't work at some point in time. So uh, you've got to be, you've got to love what you're going to do, number one, because if not, uh, you're going to be miserable uh, because it never stops. And in, in a sense, you're always thinking of cash and, you know, 
is the next paycheck going to be there? So you got to be able to handle those types of things. But, you know, for me, when I got into my business, I remember I was 27 and my daughter was a year old and I wanted the freedom. Uh, probably when I started, I thought the company wouldn't be as big, but I'd be a lot richer somehow. Uh, but the truth is, is I wanted my freedom. So I was okay to work 12 or 14 or even 15 hour days. But if my daughter had a, a dancing recital or she had a tennis match, whatever, I had that luxury of, of going to any of those events. And I did that. But, but at the same time, what people don't realize is then I went back to work at night at eight o'clock at night doing right. this or that. And so, um, you know, uh, you know what I, I sometimes question, would I do that again? Uh, you know, my mom always said, Mike, Michael, go work at Quaker Oats, you know, just you're a chemist, just enjoy it, work at Quaker Oats. I think I probably wouldn't have been happy doing that. Um, but I tell you, life would be a lot easier in some ways. But, you know, it's it, I'm a I'm kind of a journey guy. Right. I love journeys. The end result isn't what intrigues me. It's the journey that I have a big motorhome. We travel all the time and, and it kind of fits who I am. It's going to Maine or going to Vermont. Once I'm there, I'm like, okay, I'm there. I saw it for a day. I'm ready to go somewhere else. But, but it's same thing with business. It's a business. It's this evolving and the journey to get there that, that entices me. So if you don't like that type of stuff, don't get into business, uh, you know, but for me, uh, it fit, you know, it just, it, it fit, I guess. I, I love that. I, I've never heard that before. Uh, that's a very interesting perspective. It's about the journey, not the destination. Because, right. you know, you're in a motorhome right now. It's probably a nice, you know, class A or whatever, you know, right. a, a home on wheels. Uh, yeah. That is your journey now. You, it, uh, to carry that analogy backward, when you first started, you were probably in a sleeping bag in a tent on your, <laughs> on your excursion. A and, small of, uh, yeah, a small apartment where I remember my friend said, hey, your living room, I can touch the one wall from the other wall from head to toe. I go, yeah, right. Quit making fun of it. Yeah, well, I remember our first apartment. My goal in life was to be able to vacuum the entire apartment from more than one receptacle, more than one plug. <laughs> right. I said, you know, this is pretty yeah. sad that I don't even have to unroll the whole thing, right? I can reach yeah. every part of it uh, from one yeah. uh, AC plug. Yeah, I, right. I love the fact that it's about the journey because the journey is remarkable. It's it it is a thrill ride with you know scary features. It's a fantasy ride. It's it's all these things, and it it constantly changes. The view is constantly changing out the 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 entrepreneur journey, right. uh, 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 journey window. And right, and I think that most entrepreneurs are not in for it for a, into it for a destination because. If you were into it for a destination, you wouldn't end up with all these companies. You just keep buying no. more, right? You just keep starting right. journeys over and over again. So, yeah. So the journey must true. be better than the destination, right? It's it's well a, for for me it is, and you know I always look at things, and maybe I've learned this over time is every uh, maybe issue or crisis really is an opportunity, right? We just had a call I think yesterday with our quality guy our quality manager, and he said, hey, you know, um, one of our companies, they need to start looking because the DOD is changing the rules at the new NIST certification and this, that. And and my other partner was like, oh, God, we don't want to do this. It, it's another added expense. And I look and I go, are you serious? I'm really excited about this because maybe our competitors can't do it. Maybe this creates an opportunity. Maybe not, but we're only going to get better from these things. So if you kind of embrace these 
these uh, kind of obstacles, they usually they usually turn into something positive. Um, at least that's that's the way I look at it. Maybe I'm a positive guy, but uh, we always look at. For me, I always look at those optical uh, obstacles as a way to get better and, and to learn. I think the the founder, the leader, the the entrepreneur's outlook really is like that snow shovel on the front of a freight train. You know that it it does help clear the path. And I don't know why. I don't think there's anything voodoo, new agey about that. But I think the the outlook, the the the, the, the um, attitude of the person leading the company has a lot to do with the success or failure of the right. company. If you're Eeyore like doom and gloom, everything in your experience yeah. is going to be doom and gloom. And if you're just, just up and, and, and thinking of all the possibilities and open to learning new things and open to not being the smartest person in the room and open to new challenges. And, and I, I think that's what, kind of further guarantees a company's success, you know, at, at least in my yeah. experience, it looks like in your experience too. Final question. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Did you want to? I was just going to say, I mean, you know, that's a part of my role now, right? As I start moving away from doing a lot of the, the banking and the accounting and stuff. And my daughter takes that stuff on. A lot of it is, you know, I was in, in Juarez um, about a week and a half ago and it's like, guys, we're on we're right on the verge of exploding this thing's going good they look at it and say oh we got to do this we're short here and i go you guys have no idea how close you are this looks so good to me and so uh you have to be realistic and where you're at and and say okay let's come up with a plan to get it to where we want to be but i don't you know i don't see how like you said that leader has to be that optimist to do it but they have to be also a realist right so if you're doom and gloom, I could tell you my people wouldn't be working here. They'd all have quit by now, and the the culture that we we've created is what keeps these people here. Right. At the risk of sounding like a Dale Carnegie, Zig Ziglar kind of person, um, I, I think a lot of people see challenges and a lot of people see opportunities. Those that see opportunities right. are, are people like yourself, and and those that yeah. see challenges are are maybe people who work for people like yourself. Right. And it's yeah, just it's maybe. just it's up here. It's up here, and and it's not all up here. How much of your business? I'd like to ask this to everybody. Uh, how much of your business success is Mike? How much of it is luck? Uh, well, I would. You know, I don't know if uh, I would say luck had a whole lot to do with our success. Uh, you know, when when you look at you know if you looked at our history. I would say that I hit a bunch of singles and maybe I hit a few doubles. I didn't hit a home run. Yeah. I look at these guys like on shark tank sometimes, or my kid will be watching that. I go, I'm not smart enough to hit the home run. I don't know how these guys did it. That's not me. So I was the type of guy that try not to strike out, hit a couple of singles, hit a couple of doubles. And therefore I don't think I, I had a lot of luck. I think uh, I'm not even sure I was, uh, I don't think I was the smartest guy in the room. Uh, I think, it was just more belief and a work ethic that that combined that allowed us to be successful. And and that's why we got to where we're at. And then the ability to understand and constantly uh, educate yourself on how do we get to the next level and, and start understanding that people make a big difference. And the, some of those lessons that I talked about, I think are important. But 
I would not, uh, I wouldn't put it on luck, but I wouldn't put it on my ability either. It was more about kind of maybe my parents raising me that work ethic and the ability to stick with it and have that attitude that I'm going to make it work somehow. Yeah. I, I like the, I like the, the profs to your parents. Uh, I can say the same thing. My parents were both immigrants. You know, I'm first generation American. They came here in 1957, had me in 1960. And I watched uh, my parents work. You know, they never had much mm -hmm. money. They were, they had the American dream. You know, they had their right. home and, and my dad was able to leave corporate world and, and start a small business. And, but he worked and my mom worked when she did have a, a job before she stayed home with the kids. Um, just worked tirelessly. And so I yeah. think I had that work ethic just, you know, I just, it through osmosis, right? It wasn't pounded yeah. in me. I just, I didn't see any, I didn't have any other example. You know, I, I didn't have slacker parents. You know, they, they, they worked hard and uh, yeah. may, maybe not incredibly efficiently, but always worked hard and were the frugal. Yeah. I used to, when I was younger, I used to call my dad the cheapest person on the planet. And <laughs> And then I realized he, my was, he was wise, right? He was wise, but, yeah. but um, he was also, uh, he and my mother were both uh, my source of funding. You know, when the banks turned me down, I, yeah. I thought you could write a business plan and, you know, where do you want us to send the check? You know, right. do you want it in 20s? Or do you want it in gold? Yeah. You know, how do you want it? And uh, when I realized after two or three banks turned me down um, and my credit cards were maxed out and our bank account was low and mm. we had a mortgage and a, and a kid, you know, the, the whole scenario. Right. I went to my dad and, and I, I, I swear when I talk to uh, like business uh, students, I always say this line, which might be a little offensive to some, but I, I always think I have a, I had a greater chance of getting a lap dance from the Pope than I did getting money from my father. And, and right. um, yet he came through. I asked for $35,000 yeah. and he told me uh, after a week, he said he wanted to think about it. That was his style. Everything was calculated. And then he right. came back and said, um, you know, when your mother and I talked about it and we think 35 is not a good idea. And I was already preparing my concession speech and he goes, we think 70 right. is what you need. 30, 35 is not, not enough. And yeah, I, I, he said 70, he might as well have said seven, 700,000. He might as well have said 7 million, 700 million, 7 trillion. It was all the same. 70,000 right. could right. have been 70 million. It's the same yeah. from my vantage point then in 1992. Uh, and right. so, yeah, I, I think we all benefit you have, and I have benefited yeah. from the lessons our parents taught us either intentionally or unintentionally. And, and some of it was yeah. what to do and some of it was what not to do, but, right. um, but it, we, we took it in and it's just part of the fabric and you're now spreading that fabric to I hope. the other companies. Right. That's yeah, my, my big thing I always tell people, and, and I think my kids have that too, is, you know, I was blessed. I had a, a great childhood. My mom and dad were great. They were very frugal. My, my dad would spend a little bit, but my mom was really frugal. But man, did they work. And I remember when I was 16, my dad's like, all right, I'm going to show you what work really is. You're going to the machine shop. He was a machinist uh, in Chicago. And and remember there, and he, he was talking to his buddy Burgess. He said, put him on the, the dirtiest machine, but make sure he keeps all his fingers, right, right. type thing. And If you arrive with so, 10 fingers, you go home with 10 fingers. Yeah, so that was the thing, and it was 12 hours a day, and, and it was dirty. But the truth is, is uh, you have to, to me at least, my success will be, was I able to pass that to my, my kids and my grandkids? And I remember my wife's like, oh, you're too easy. You're letting them play tennis. You're doing this. And I go... As long as they're working hard, as long as they put the effort in, they're passionate, 
uh, I don't mind supporting them, but I laugh now because they the people look at my kids and they go, how did how, how did they get that work ethic? I don't know if it's in the blood. I don't know if it's what we did. All I hope is that from generation to generation, we can keep that that kind of same Midwestern way of doing things. So you yeah. work hard, you you earn it, and and it's not about the possessions you have, right? It's you know I got one weakness, motorhomes. Other than that, I'm you know I just uh, the rest of it is just you know is gravy the way I view it. So. Yeah. Well, I, I love motorhomes too, but, uh, lately my homes have been floating on lakes. So I, I'm, I'm into That's boating. That's even better. I'm into boating. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, That's it, even I, better. we work, we work hard. We deserve that. Uh, and I yeah. know the entire time you're driving your motorhome and the entire time I'm floating on my boat, I'm still thinking of business, right? It never stops. And you're coming back and you have 20 new ideas, 20 new ideas. He's like, and you're saying, let's go guys. We're going to do this, this, and they're looking Oh God! Please don't go on another vacation. Exactly, we Keep got so here. much more to do. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Mike, this has yes, been this has thing. been great. I really appreciate the insight and uh, the advice and the the story of your business journey. Uh, thanks for sharing yeah. that with my audience and with me. Yeah. I, I really appreciate yeah, it. I learn course. more and more talking to people like yourself. Uh, you know, before I started doing this, I thought my journey was exceptionally unique, and and somehow I did it all wrong and I managed to survive anyway. And then I talked to other business owners and I realized that we were all in the same video game with the same trap doors and the yeah. same number of limited number of lives and monsters trying it's, to get us. Yeah. It's it, funny how similar it is. And, and I agree. I mean, I hear your story and I'm like, ah, oh God, that's so similar to what we did. But, uh, but anyways, it's fun to talk about it. Like you said, we always like to talk about our journey and, and, exactly. and uh, the struggles we had and all that. So I thank you for your time. Well, thanks uh, back right back at you. And um, uh, audience, uh, if you have any questions for Mike, I'm going to put Mike's uh, contact information in our show notes as well as it'll be a long list of show notes because I'll list all the companies that are associated uh, with uh, FCT Assembly. And uh, if you want to reach out to them, you'll be able to do it through the show notes. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this podcast uh, in your car, it's also available in video format. So you could see Mike's charming face and, and uh, uh, look at the cringes when I ask him tough questions. No, he, he didn't cringe once. Uh, but uh, that's available on our, on our uh, Concept Creation YouTube channel. So you can just go to YouTube, search Concept Creation, and you can watch this video uh, as well as listen to it in the car. So uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, this was episode number three. We're looking forward to doing episode number four in two weeks. We'll be back at you. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of the Concept to Creation podcast. A special thanks to my guest today, Mike Samika of FCT Assembly. If you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, please be sure and subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and virtually wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this in the car and you would like to see the video version of this, as soon as you get home, as soon as you get back to the office, be sure and search for us on our YouTube channel, the Concept of Creation YouTube channel. When you're on the YouTube channel, be sure and hit the subscribe button and hit that bell icon so you'll be notified of new episodes as soon as they're released. We do release new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of each month. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks.